A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you several men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. So good morning, and welcome to North Point. So as you may have guessed, we are going through, or you've seen the last week, uh, we started talking about a race in scripture, or at least understanding from a scriptural understanding, how do we understand race, how do we understand racism, how do we understand um, injustices that the scripture addresses directly. And so continuing that, I get to start today with a passage that I've been meditating on actually for the last year. Uh, it started uh, last year when I was thinking about after the George Floyd incidents, not just how publicly we were dealing with it, but how in the church uh, issues of injustice are dealt with and injustice of inequality and uh, how people are treated. And it's a sad story. But I looked at it and said, okay, so it must be addressed in Scripture somewhere. And then I didn't have to look far because I'm, I looked at it, reading through Acts. I came across these passages that we just read that I'm going to focus on today. And the idea is to see not just what we've, what, how it can go wrong and what we've done wrong, but how we can get in step with the Spirit. Because that's what the book of Acts is about. Keeping in step with the Spirit as to what the kingdom of God, the church the, is to be the representative of the kingdom, what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. And if we can understand from the very earliest church how they made some missteps and overlooked some things and also responded in a godly way, that gives us a model of how to respond as a church that we can in institute those values of the kingdom, at least in the church and overspill into our culture around us. So that's what I'm gonna focus on. So does the church get things wrong sometimes? Yes, absolutely. And unfortunately, that is true. Um, and if it can happen to the early church, the very men and women who walked with Jesus, saw his miracles, ate the bread that he gave, that uh, he, when he multiplied for the 5,000 over the 4,000, if they couldn't get it wrong because of some things that were in their mind, in their attitudes, in their habits, in their comfort level, in the way they had understood religion thus far in their own world and how it worked, then we can get it wrong too. But they gave us a way to repent, to pivot, and to turn towards moving away from the old ways and moving into God's ways as they were led by the Holy Spirit. 
And make no mistake, it is the Holy Spirit who leads this process. It isn't the wisdom of men. It isn't the public attention uh, focused on an issue. It is the Holy Spirit who brings change and transforms the church. But historically, we need to wrestle with some, old, some things. Okay, and I looked up some facts, at least in the U.S., of how things had, have happened over the years. Some of this may be familiar for you, some not. Uh, 1773, the first black church was organized in South Carolina. It was the African United Methodist Episcopal Church. And the reason a part of this had come about was because for the first time, preachers like George Whitfield actually preached to black people, people who have African descent. Sadly, before that, a lot of people didn't consider them human. It's a shocking thing. But George Whitfield paved the way by beginning to preach, and so black Christians were, were gathered in a church. But sadly, he still fell short because he also didn't decry, race, uh, decry the, the roots of it, racism and slavery, and call for its abolition. So positive steps were made, but not far enough. 1787 in Philadelphia, St. George, George's Methodist Church, blacks and whites were, were meeting together in a church. They were allowed to fellowship. They, they designed, the, their, they welcomed blacks into the community in the fellowship, and they sat in pews at first together, but when the blacks came to sit in the, those seats that were sort of reserved for whites and shared, tried to share communion with them, they weren't allowed to eat or drink from the same cup, and they weren't allowed to sit in those seats. They were forced to go into a balcony and sit in the balcony. These are brothers and sisters in Christ, and they were not allowed to be equal? That's not according to God's word. So what about us in good old New England, Puritan, pilgrim country, where we have, the, in the early years, they were very godly in many ways, but they still fell short. When I look at the Native Americans, how they were treated, I looked at John Eliot, for in the year 1675, about a quarter of the Native Americans in New England had become believers. They had become Christians. They were organized in, as they were known as praying Indians, and they were organized in praying towns like the town of Natick. And yet it was noted that they were to be separate in fellowship. They were, in fact, a lower class, as were other races as well. And it was even noted, the words, that they had to recognize and admit that, they were, that the whites were culturally superior to them. Ugly. They preached the gospel to them, that's good, but they still fell short. 1994, Memphis Miracle, they were the Pentecostal denomination that got together and white pastors and leaders apologized to black Pentecostal uh, African-American churches that... that and they apologized for past racism for making this one Pentecostal movement into two churches of different races. Thankfully, they reconciled at that point. Sadly, though, and still in 2000, 87% of churches in America were solely made up by white people. There was no people of color. And it would probably go both ways. So this is an enduring problem. How can it be this way where we have such uh, great knowledge and great biblical insight and a large church and so many Christians, and yet it still exists. Well, that's why we have to look back at the early church. Now, there was some early theology that was very bad, and I don't know exactly when the genesis of it became, but they got their theology, at least in the American context, from Genesis 9, 
20 to 27, and they used a verse where Noah, one of Noah's sons, Ham, had laughed at his nakedness, and he was cursed. The descendants of Ham uh, were cursed, and it was taken to be this was a curse upon a certain group of people who would always be slaves. It says in uh, Genesis 9, uh, I think it's verse 27, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And somehow that was applied to all of one race. And yet it was completely arbitrary because it could have been people with dark skin or people with white skin, people with freckles or people who are left-handed, people who are blonde hair or people who have dark hair. It doesn't, it's completely arbitrary. Bad, bad exegist, bad theology. It was a gross misreading of scripture. And it led to inferiority and superiority of certain races and certain peoples. So we know, especially as Reformed people, that sin has deep, deep roots in our lives, in our hearts, in our culture. And we should not be surprised when we get it wrong because it's there. Even as much as we try and we work with the Holy Spirit to get rid of it, it's still there. We get the idea that difference is bad, uniformity is good. That's really at the root of much of the issues we're still wrestling with. And yet that's exactly opposite of God's opinion. But how much worse it is when there's religious justification for understanding that. And sad to say it happens a lot in other religions. And I, but that's not what we're focusing on today. We're focusing on within our community of faith of why it still happens or at least how it happens and why, how we can get on and move with the, move with the Holy Spirit to, to fulfill his his goal is to be, is to bring some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That uniformity is not what he's about, but diversity. But as equals, without losing distinction of equals. So how could this have happened? Well, it's, it's a human process that happens. But in the early church, and this was a very foundational time for the early church, they had been learning lessons as we look at the passage today. They'd already learned a lesson from Ananias and Sapphira that the Holy Spirit, God's moving in the new community. It wasn't, they weren't known as Christians yet. They were still pretty much within the Jewish system. But God was not going to tolerate lying. Ananias and Sapphira paid with their lives for that. And yet, and so conscious of that, they move into the chapter 6, and we hear about how the church is growing. The church is growing in the, in, in mostly in Jerusalem and Judea, so very close to the center. And it says, a complaint rose on the part of the Greek-speaking Jews against the native Hebraic Jews because of their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So there's a challenge. There's a test case. This is a test of holiness, of how they're going to treat each other. It uncovered something that already existed within the, their system of understanding and bias. They understood, actually, and they, they weren't necessarily to blame completely because this had been their raising. This has been thousands of years of generational understanding that Jews were God's people. God had one people, the Jews, descendants of Abraham. He had one place of worship that was to be the temple in Jerusalem. And there was really to be one religious system of language and culture who you, what you eat, how you eat, who you marry, who you don't marry, how you worship, how you don't worship. You, they were to be distinct as God's people, set apart, but they forgot the part that they were to be a light to all nations. As a people, they were chosen to be separate and chosen to be unique, even called to a higher standard, 
And yet there was always a way for people who were non-Jews to come within, into their midst, and they were still to be treated as equals, even if there were aliens and strangers among them. Yet the strategy that God had used through, that through the Jews would come the Messiah, who would be a savior for all peoples, the early church had already embraced that fact. It had been years, I don't know how many years, uh, at least a few years since Jesus' resurrection, and Pentecost had already happened, and yet they were still, internally, they were still on autopilot as to their cultural bearings. They were still looking at understanding, okay, so uh, we're still God's people, and it looks mostly like us, people like us, right? We're, okay, well, there are also these these. Um, Greek-speaking, in some versions of the text it says Hellenic Jews, meaning Helen of Troy, so it's linked back to Greece. But they're Greek-speaking Jews. They're still Jews. They're, even one of them had, uh, well, some of them had already gone through the full circumcision process to become uh, circumcised as well. And yet, in the community of faith of the early church, they're being treated as second-class citizens by an oversight, at least, but based on probably their assumptions and based on their habits of what language they spoke and how they culturally associated with each other. Maybe it was, it was obviously probably all Hebraic Jews who were doing the food distribution. But think of it, this is a gross injustice. This is almost the equivalent of calling communion first of people of one class getting it, then others who are of a different class getting their share. This was a particularly sensitive issue at the time, and yet it was happening in the early church. And within the community, if this at this foundational level, if they had allowed this to continue, it would continue on for generations. But I say, no, actually, it wouldn't have been able to continue on because God would not have stood for it. The Holy Spirit would have done more, more than just hear the complaint or motivate those who were not getting their fare as Greek speakers. They would have... They, God would have done something else because God would not allow the kingdom to continue to exist with such a, at this early stage with such injustice. And so the, the complaint rose and the, the, there was, this is the chance for the pivot, the great pivot within the church to really grasp the understanding that Christ died for all peoples. If the gospel is the gospel, it has to be the gospel to everyone. There is no distinction between male, female, Jew or Greek slave or free, this is the gospel. And if they continued a double-tiered system of treating people differently, it would not be the gospel. They would not be a gospel community. But this had to change, and this was their turn, their, their chance to pivot. They were going to have to reflect the ultimate goal being Revelation 7-9. Before they had been one people, one place, one language and culture as Jews, now they're going to move towards the goal of being every people every, in all places, in all languages. That's what Revelation 9, 7, 9 is. Actually, they didn't have the book of Revelation, but they could get that from the other parts of the Old Testament, which they did have. So this had to affect how they did their habits, how they fellowshiped together. And why were they resistant to change? I have to look at my own heart and say, you know what? I'm comfortable when the system works for me. I don't, I'm not a person who's obviously president. I'm not Jeff Bezos. I don't have that kind of power and authority or wealth. I'm not a um, president of anything big. But within my small circle, and I can't even say how small that is, but it must be really small, I like the system that works for me when I get to make, uh, when I benefit from it. 
The benefit, the, the, the system works for me, and that was, work. face it, we like it. We don't like change. We like it when things work for us, and it's flowing smoothly. Why change it? It, it involves a lot of change. You have to do something. But the leaders realized there was something the Holy Spirit was doing, and it was they needed to react. They needed to begin a process of considering and considering. That's the first part. So they said that, so the 12 called the group, the whole group together of the disciples and said, it is not right for us to neglect the word of God to wait on tables. But, so there's something interesting. They didn't say, oh, we recognize there's an injustice, though they did because they reacted. But they began, and it's not even clear in the text, but they discerned this. They discerned that they were actually this diversity in the community linguistically and ethnically and in every way was also a diversity in the kinds of gifts that were being used. The community was getting so big they needed more people, more eyes on the goal and eyes on where things, they, things were out of control that the, the, the 12 and certainly whatever leaders there were, they couldn't see everything. They had overlooked it. They, were, they needed more eyes on the community and hearing from more people from all segments to understand what God was doing. And some of it would mean every would be serving, but not everybody would be serving in the same way. So they reacted by first addressing the first issue. But carefully they said, select among you brothers, seven men who are well attested, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this necessary task. They picked seven men who had Greek names, and that's pretty clear and pretty evident. The community among themselves chose them, so they affirmed the grievance by allowing them to, and trusted them to, to pick godly men who got it, who could see what was going wrong and how to address it. They, they, they were already actually empowered people because they didn't, the, the disciples aren't the purveyors of the, givers of the Holy Spirit. It, the Holy Spirit himself is the one who had already empowered them as brothers and sisters. What they had not been is acknowledged as having gifts to serve the body, but in a different way and in a different language. And they could see what the disciples couldn't see because they couldn't hear probably well enough the culture and the systems of, of the Greek-speaking Jews who were in their community. So they elevated them. But then again, they said, but we, as this is the disciples saying, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. So the proposal pleased the entire group, and they chose Stephen, he's a Greek name, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, with Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a Gentile convert, convert to Judaism from Antioch. So they positively said and publicly said, we affirm these men. We affirm this part of their community. They're equals. That was groundbreaking. There is no class within the, the new community. There is no one language. There is not just one people, one ethnicity, one race. And soon they're gonna learn it's not just one place. The church is gonna spread to other places. So they said yes. They gave an affirmative thumbs up to the whole thing. So the church will not have that. There is no longer an advanced standing, if you want, as people from, from ethnically Hebraic background. So this, in the kingdom of God, is different. And they recognize the diversity of gifts. And they said their gifts were in preaching and teaching and prayer. Others were going to serve the body in other ways as well. And they were valued equally. Unity is not the goal, but, or sorry, unity of the body is the goal, but not uniformity. We don't all have to be the same. 
unity, but not uniformity. By elevating these leaders, they also changed the system. They changed the system by putting new leaders in charge who got it, who understood, who were sensitive to the, the abuses that had happened or the mistakes, the oversight that had happened, or the, the overlooking of things. So the, and then they stood these men before the apostles who prayed and placed their hands on them. That public acknowledgement was, was gold. That made them fully empowered publicly, though the Holy Spirit is the one who had empowered them. And then something tremendous happened, and I don't want you to miss it because this comes out of the last verse of it. This is where the Holy Spirit has solved, hopefully, within the issue, within the community, the issue within the community, and now growth happens again in a new way to new communities. And it says, the word of God continued to spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, why did they stick that in? Why did Luke stick that in? Because there was something tangible that happened in the justice realm. Priests themselves were part of the temple people, the, the, the special group of people who were to take the gifts that were offered at the altar, the bread, the meat, the other things after that had been dedicated, and they were to distribute among the other priests and so, and also probably to the widows, they were to feed. They were in a feeding ministry in some ways. And actually in the same century, it's noted that this system was so abused among the priestly class that some priests starved to death because they didn't get their share of what was, had been offered at the altar. Some, had, some of the, the priests with power had gone to the threshing floors of the people who were giving, going to give and confiscated the grain without even distributing it to the people who didn't have any, the priests. So they got their share and didn't share it with others. This was a powerful witness, apparently, to the priestly class, and then suddenly they're responding. It's like they were saying, these people don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. They're doing it. Their actions are speaking loudly in this case. And so they were welcomed in. And they saw that justice was not just a concept in words, but it actually came about in actions. So what do we take from all this? Well, God is pro-diversity. Not just in, in, in languages, people, nations, but in giftings. He gifts all people to serve the church. And the early church would not have embraced the gift if they had not embraced the gifts of the Greek-speaking Jews if they wouldn't have found a way to reach the other Greek-speaking, not just Jews. But from this incident, there began a small, what seemed maybe an exception to the early church, a little pathway that Greek-speaking Jews could also become equals was the foundational principle of why they expanded the path of being equals to next to Samaritans. You've got Philip up in Samaria preaching to the Samaritans, and the Holy Spirit comes on them. You've got Cornelius, a God-fearer, uh, coming, uh, and he's, uh, he's not even really much of a, a God-fearer. He's, he's a Gentile, but not a, he had never been circumcised. He was, he was completely unclean, and God welcomed him. And the Holy Spirit came upon them. So soon this good news that the church is all languages, all peoples, all nations, is welcoming more Greeks. And they're up in Antioch, and there's a church growing there. And none of them are, well, some of them are obviously Jews, but not, the majority of them are not. And this is where they start to take on a new identity, and they're called Christians for the first time. Up until now, they're, they're known really as a sect of Judaism. So 
what that small pathway for equality became a superhighway, which we are enjoying. We are on, we, because of these early decisions, other precedent setting incidents happen to expand it that all nations, in fact, that is in keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. And their steps to getting there began with listening. Listening to the aggrieved community, listening to those who didn't have voices or didn't have access, and they discerned. And in every case, it always involves discernment. And based on that, they made some changes. They acted. They kept in, in line with what God's values and his kingdom was like, and they, in some ways, you can say they repented, though this was not a huge a transgression. It was an oversight. But if they had failed to react, it would have been a huge issue. And God brought growth as a result of it. That's the pivot that they made. They pivoted and understood the kingdom of God was, very, it was going to be much broader than just people like themselves. And we get right after that also Stephen going out into the community, preaching and teaching and using those gifts to reach more people. And he was the first martyr of the church. And actually, when I look through what he preached and what the, the crowd that wound up stoning him, including Saul, who was giving his permission, was they complained about two things, that he was, he was telling them, he, they, they said he speaks against the temple and that he wanted to change the customs of Moses. So he was touching the very sacred icons of their culture, which they had been made an idol, and their traditions had become a pagan, like a, a, a exclusive instead of inclusive. So at the end of Stephen's speech, just before they stoned him, he called them stiff-necked, basically proud, they were lacking humility, uncircumcised at heart, so they were pagans, pagans. They were idolaters and they refused the guidance of the Holy Spirit and killed the prophets, and sure enough, that's what they did with Stephen. So how do we avoid those things? We have to do the same things that early church did. Listen, discern, act, and let the Holy Spirit bring about growth into new communities. How do we do that practically? Well, I can't see everything. We as leaders can't see everything. We need to hear, we need to see what your eyes, we need to hear what you are seeing that we can't see, and so we need to hear from the minor, those who, who may not have been heard. We need to discern. That's what we do together. We need to, each other's discernment. And we need to act where we need to act. And how do we do that? And I thought about this, and I think these are, this is my two, uh, the most reduced points that I can for application. I want God to change my affections. And that's a funny word we don't use much these days, affections. What I favor. Do I, when I walk into a room, do I... My affections are drawn towards people I know, people who look like me, or people who definitely speak my language, but am I, I want God to change my affections to say, okay, I think I'm gonna, and I tried to practice this even yesterday at the wedding. I wanna go meet people I don't know, I wanna meet people who don't look like me, and I wanna talk to people who I don't understand much about their customs and culture. I want God to change my affections. But that is a work of the Holy Spirit and I was trying to keep in step with him. And I wanted to, I also need to change my language, my actual words, my very words. Do the words we use in our church understood by everybody? Or are they too high? And do I change my vocabulary when I talk to different people that reflect their understanding? Yeah, that's a very much Holy Spirit way led to talk to people. 
and used in their language, but not just their language, like I speak uh, the two languages of Afghanistan, but using words that they understand that, that fit their meaning, their understanding. Yeah, so I want God to change my affections and to change my words. I can't reduce it any lower than that so I can keep in step with the Holy Spirit as he move and, and practice discernment the whole way. So this is one way that we can see that the early church dealt with these tremendous issues and we can follow their model. So let me pray for us. Lord, I do ask for that. Lord, I do ask for your Holy Spirit empowered way that we can walk in step with your spirit. Lord, that you would change my affections. You would change my very words that I use. You would draw me to those maybe who are different or maybe those who I don't even agree with but may look like me, but I need to talk to. Lord, draw me to the, change my affections, change my words, that they would be understood so that your kingdom might grow. Lord, we want to embrace all that you have for us and keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Do this, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.